0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Know the Show, our musical theater podcast where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I am Michael Fling, the Artistic Associate at Goodspeed Musicals, and I'm thrilled to be joined by one of the women I'm fine to have pin me down, Annika Chapin, Signature Theater's Director of Artistic Development. Hi, Annika.
1: Hi, Michael. I was a little afraid for a hot second that you were going to say, like, the Pumbaa to my Timon, which
0: is accurate inaccurate. yeah it's not inaccurate not yeah. accurate mm-hmm. um, it just felt more fun the pin pinjig in is a great i it is a talk about in our the but and the running gags of shows or whatever the what's the term that we that i use because of you but it's a great oh, little, the little runners runner, the runners it's a great little runner in the film of, of this musical and also the musical itself yes um so why don't you remind us of the clue about um the show we'll be getting to know
1: yes well uh the clue that we gave was that the creator of this show uh creator is the term that's the best term for this but you'll see why that's complicated in the second had pitched it as in the second act one of the main characters would go into the desert and basically meet another character and find a sort of an oasis and another character would be like a cocktail waitress in this kind of vegas like sand thing in the middle of the desert i believe was was the pitch which which actually is like slightly inaccurate for reasons we'll talk about but that was the pitch that this creator gave and yet they got the job
0: and uh that creator would be the one and only julie taymore who indeed is the reason that we have Disney's The Lion King, um, now on Broadway for 25 years.
1: A million years, uh, forever.
0: Forever and for always. Uh, the New Phantom, some people are calling it. And by some people, I mean me. Yeah. Um, and of course, it has a musical lyrics by Elton John and Tim Rice. Additional music and lyrics by Levo M, Mark, Mancina, Jay Rifkin, Julie Taymor, and Hans Zimmer. And a book by Roger Allers and Irene Mechie, adapted from the screenplay. By Irene Mechie, Jonathan Roberts, and Linda Wolverton. Definitely the longest author listing that we have uh, done on this program.
1: Yeah, but at least it's like when I was looking into the film and who wrote the film, that was an insane journey as well. Because then like, I think 80 writers like tur- made different versions of the film of Lion King. And it made me happy about this relative simplicity of theater, which did not seem simple until this moment. Well,
0: and it's the whole like animated film of it all. Cause like that's, that process yeah. is so, um, so like, I don't want to say I teamwork, but it is like almost like decision by committee in so many yeah. ways. Cause you have so many people that have to like get on board with whatever it is. It's happening. Right. It feels like it's from uh, being the Disney nerd that I am. I will out myself as a fan of the house of mouse right now. Um, Cause it's bound to come up multiple times as we talk about the Lion King. Um, it's just kind of the process. Like it is like, because it's constantly changing and evolving and like, if, if i've learned anything watching many uh, behind the scenes of disney filmmaking that is just the nature of animation it is very different from how traditional movies are made much to the chagrin of the people who took over disney in the 80s and 90s and they changed that around a little bit but lion king a notable exception <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, so with that i think that takes us to the speed test where i do my best to summarize the plot of the lion king in less than one minute
1: i think you'll be fine
0: i think you'll be fine i and i yeah because i can it's the movie but like with a little bit of an addition yeah i think and i know the film i mean hello i am a child of the 90s i know the film well my third birthday party was famously i just can't wait to be king Adorable. which was more a comment on more a comment on my personality than it was my love of the lion king but i did love lion king so here we are it can be both it can be both we contain multitudes
1: all right are you ready i'm ready okay lions wildebeests little hornbills go
0: uh so we've got um uh, Uh, Mufasa who is like the king of the pride lands uh he's got a jealous brother Scar um and Mufasa has a baby Simba who is going to be prince uh Scar his prince and gonna be king Scar definitely jealous of that uh basically uh I mean orchestrates the killing of Mufasa and then tells Simba to run away and then tries to have him killed, but then the you know, laughing hyenas don't actually do it. So then he spends a long time away where he meets Timon and Pumbaa, who uh, Rosecrans and Guildenstern, and they have lots of fun together. Uh, and he grows up. And then Nala, who's his childhood like best friend, Um, has been exiled basically from um, the Pride Lands because she won't sleep with Scar, evidently. Um, And so she's like, we don't have food. Everything's terrible. And so Simba comes back to regain his fight for his home and regain his uh, leader. He, being the leader of Pride Rock, he kills Scar and uh, ends up with Nala and everyone's happy the end.
1: Yay. That was
0: under, that was like 55 seconds.
1: That was like, you got like two seconds to spare right there.
0: Uh, not too shabby, I would say. I did not include Rafiki, who is uh, the baboon who, uh, you know, baptizes Simba and is crucial after, you know, the crucial scene where, uh, you know, Simba reunites with the ghost of Mufasa. That's what we I didn't really talk about. But um, yeah, that's basically it.
1: And you got a little mention there of uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, because this is partially inspired by Hamlet. With the... Which,
0: do they actually admit to it? ever that it wasn't yeah. Hamlet because i feel like they like kind of start to but it's like they didn't really draw on it until they like kind of stumbled their way into it and then they're like yeah it's like bambi and
1: hamlet bamblet <laughs> like, yeah <laughs> i mean it felt like when i was reading about the the movie it felt like they went through so many different ideas that like I, I feel like eventually they just were like, okay, let's try this. One. Oh, this one seems to work. Hey, it's kind right. of like Hamlet. Like, you know, like, I, <laughs> I I don't think, it definitely doesn't seem to be like somebody was like Hamlet I'm in Africa. It was just like, let's do one in Africa. Okay, cool. Let's try uh, literally every possible plot. Okay, this one works. Hey, it's a murderous uncle, like, and a confused leading man that right, yeah. needs to grow into him, himself. yes <laughs> the
0: oh, Yeah um uh with uh well you know a lot less death than hamlet but not not death
1: yeah Uh, some death some death
0: so so bold bold of uh of disney um and that will while it is a great segue to um another segment we're actually going to insert the segment why god why why god why today where we talk about the the show's why, what are the authors trying to say, authors and creatives trying to say, what's their driving purpose behind the narrative, and and what's the central theme of the show? So uh I think this one is relatively easy. It's pretty well documented. Um, what and and I want to specify that we are talking about the stage musical of Lion King. We are not talking about the animated film, though we will talk about the animated film a lot because it's actually, I think, the first time in the history of this program that we have talked about something that was a musical and then was adapted for Broadway um, or adapted for the stage. It was a film musical. I think it's the first time we've actually done it this way. So I think it's bound to happen that we talk about the animated movie quite a bit because it is the template on which this is all built. Um, But uh, the stage adaptation, Julie Taymor is very, very clear that the idea of the circle and the circle of life is like central to how she visualized the piece how she staged the piece how like the the life cycle and in the reborn the the rebirth and the redemption arc and getting back home like that entire kind of you know podcast famously a visual medium i'm gesturing a circle with my hand but that is um that is very much her um her uniting factor her um thematic strong point uh but Monica, you know, I always love your answer to this to this topic. So what, what do you think is the operating operating idea um, thing that we're we're developing and thinking about meditating on however it is we want to talk about this segment.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that this certainly the circle and I totally see that. I think that's like thematically totally right. It it just captures everything. Um in terms of like the protagonist journey, we know I love a protagonist journey. I mean, this is very much a growing up story, right? It's a, it's about a a child who is un, afraid of the responsibility that he has to take on and then um through many different I mean, it's a, it's like it, it's kind of Joseph Campbell is the hero with a thousand faces a little yeah. bit. It's like this very hero's journey um has to go out, go forth, confront his fears, make friends, you know, have helpers, um do the thing that he was scared to do and realize that in so doing he is becoming an adult and becoming someone who can kind of continue that on. So so it's pretty, I mean, it's a pretty straightforward one on that front, I think, as well. well, and
0: she even in the adaptation, like makes that a big point right like that that, that's even more in the stage musical than it is in the movie like there's yeah there's absolutely like there the things that are added that are different about the show do are all basically besides the art of it all and we'll get to the art of it all are the story wise it's all about simba's journey and arc and actually filling in the like blank that the movie kind of skips over of like does it, what happens in the intervening years between, like that hakuna mm-hmm. that kind of just like skips over, which musical does too, but they insert some scenes and things that that illustrate that journey. So, I think yeah. that's a, a very accurate.
1: Yeah, yeah, and as well as like bumping up the, you know, the role of Nala and the yes. role of her, like, yeah. and sort of like deepening because the movie is not all that complex in a lot of that fronts. Yeah, a lot of those fronts, which is funny because you'd think that like you know, the movie has, what, five songs in it? It's not, it doesn't have, it's not really a fully fleshed out musical in the way the musical is much more full of music and stuff. And yet also the musical kind of manages to kind of deepen a lot of that storytelling. It's
0: a very well. cinematic musical in many ways. Yeah. As opposed to a lot of the other, like Disney Renaissance musicals that the Howard Ashman and Alan Minkin are like, we're doing Broadway, but in animated form. Like this yeah. is not is not quite that, I think is definitely fair to say. And I I think the, you know and a, and coupling off what you said it's also obviously it's a story of identity and acceptance right like it is also yeah that is the that is the thread that connects so many of the the characters and is an acceptance of identity and well this is what i do this is how i i fit into both the story the puzzle story uh, the story the puzzle of this story but also like in the greater like you know natural world i guess too so yeah, yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of that in there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: yeah a rich text it's you know well is it let's get <laughs> let's, let's point. get
1: <laughs> a rich let's,
0: template we'll use that we'll use that as the vehicle to get to back to before we can never go back to before where Anika tells about the origins of the lion king so so Anika, what what do we need to know about how the lion king became the lion king stage musical
1: well, here's what I'm not going to tell you about the movie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> We're assuming everyone's seen it. If you haven't, get a Disney Plus subscription. Definitely worth, you know, or rent it. But I trust that if you're listening to this podcast, you've probably seen.
1: I mean, honestly, if you haven't seen it, I just message us and, and tell us how you managed to not see yeah. it. It's such a like cultural icon on so many levels that I. it's almost hard to avoid in a it's way like,
0: if it's like if someone hadn't seen the wizard of oz i would put it on that level like if you haven't seen I, i'd put wizard it above I, now i mean like it, it's like right like it's, yeah come on,
1: come on. yeah anyway so anyway i was going to talk about that but then like uh, it, it's so com- it's like it's a whole other thing and it's so complicated how that became a thing like so instead what i was i what i'm going to talk about is the person who is definitely the key figure in the musical version of the lion king who has nothing at all to do with the movie version of the lion king um presumably saw it uh but that is julie Tamor. julie taymore is a person who is a director is a creative is an artist um so so unique um and so much like like it is hard to imagine a theater person who is a director technically, um, but has so much of like the the force making a show that Julie Tamor has with this production of The Lion King. Like it, like it she just is this show in many ways because she made, you know, the design, it's like all her. So anyway, um I thought I would dive in a little bit to her background because she is so interesting and she is so unusual and Uh, What I thought was kind of funny when I was looking her up was that she has, in some ways, not the background you would imagine, but also like exactly the path you would imagine, um, which is going to make sense in just a second. Okay, so, Julie Taymor. So, she was born in Newton, Massachusetts in 1952 to a mother who was a political science professor and a democratic activist and a father who was a gynecologist. So, she was not from a very artsy family, which is kind of what I mean by it's not the background you would imagine she she kind of feels like someone who would have grown up like on a commune, you know with parents who were making puppets all around her and like storytellers and like she's all of this stuff feels so much like it's a part of her vocabulary that the fact that she came from these like uh really clearly very smart interesting people but not at all people who are involved in the arts was kind of a surprise to me but What is interesting is that she knew very early on that she wanted to be in theater. Like at seven years old, she was putting on shows in her backyard for her friends and family. And then by 10 years old, she was playing roles with the Boston Children's Theater. And it, she has a funny thing where she's like, was involved with many theater troops over the course of her life. And she's always like the youngest member of the troupe, which is kind of an interesting thing, too. So by 13, she was taking trips by herself to Boston in, uh, every weekend. And she was going to theater and seeing different theater companies and getting all of this knowledge of different theater things. And then at 15 her parents sent her on an exchange to Sri Lanka and India where she was exposed to a lot of like Sri Lankan puppetry forms, Indian theater forms, like that was kind of the beginning of a of an interest in Asian theater making techniques that was going to be a, a part of her life the entire time. And again, like this is a theme for this story of her. It's like I feel like other people when you look at their past, especially artists, it's a little bit grab baggy, like you'll get a sort of history where it's like, and then she became a, like a marketing executive for two years. And then this happened and like this other thing. And then she decided to write a book on a way. You know, it's like kind of like they do a lot of different things, but it doesn't feel like, oh, yes, every single piece of the biography of this person has led up to this to this artist that she became. That is Not what happens with Julie Chamour. Every single part of this biography leads to the artist that she became. So anyway, back. So we're 15. She's in India and Sri Lanka. She comes back. She graduates from high school at only 16. um, Clearly very smart and advanced from an early age. And then she went to study at L'Ecole Internationale de Théâtre Jacques Lecoq, where she learned mime. And that helped her develop her physical sensibilities. And when you see her shows, there's a lot of like body storytelling. It's not quite dance, but it's like a physical vocabulary. That's high movement.
0: This... My movement professor in college studied with Jacques Lecoq, so yes. it is very. Uh, you know, uh, it's art. It is it's absolutely art. It's, it's art, and it's and very cool. Art. I don't want to take. Yeah. I'm not trying to denigrate. It is very cool. It is just a different. It is a like style of thinking almost. It, it is a
1: style of thinking. Yeah, and how do you lo- use your body to tell a story? And so that that is definitely something that you see in Lion King, and you see in in her work. Um, and while she was in Paris studying this, uh, she started working with masks and she also immersed herself in film, especially the work of Kurosawa and Fellini. And again, right, like every one of these things, it's like, yep, yep, there it is, tracks, there it is. Tracks, Um, She then came, I mean, I would have, I would love like one detail in this biography that was like, she's obsessed with cheese doodles. You know, like You're something right, yeah. that's like, oh. Uh,
0: her favorite I guess, restaurant? On the border.
1: Like, yes, <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, Apple's. Huh. Yeah, only ever wears pink sneakers you right, know like right. some random thing where it's like okay um but now uh so then she came back to the state she went to Oberlin of course where all the greatest artists who do weird puppet stuff I feel like go um she became a member of director Herbert blouse troupe again the youngest member of the troupe and took a summer program at the American Society for Eastern Arts in Seattle, where she learned Indonesian topeng masked dance drama and wayang kulit shadow puppetry. I may have butchered the pronunciation of both of those things. Um, I apologize if I did. But so those things were going to be huge in her uh, poet the puppetry forms that she did later. Um, she goes back to Oberlin. She graduated Phi Beta Kappa with a degree in mythology and folklore. Of course. What a shock! I was gonna say, what a shock! What a shock! I mean, that's what I mean. It's like everything is like, oh yes, she knew exactly who she was and the kind of art she wanted to do, like from seven years old, and just like
0: the path it leads perfectly to what this is going to become. It's that's actually it's amazing, actually, isn't it?
1: Kind of amazing. Kind
0: of amazing. Yeah.
1: I mean, maybe they just edited out some other stuff, but like everything is like she is like on a path to learn these things that ended up becoming like exactly what she needed to make the art that she wanted to make. Make. So she had gotten, while she was in college, she had gotten a Watson Fellowship, which allowed her to spend the next few years after college traveling in Japan and Indonesia. And in Indonesia, she developed a masked and dance theater company called uh, Teatro Lo, which toured Indonesia with two original productions. And then one of those productions, Tamor remounted in La Mama when she came back to the States. Um, And when she came back to New York, she was working at The Public for Joe Papp. Um, doing these interesting sort of immersive things. Uh, She won a MacArthur Genius Grant in 1991. Uh, She was directing at the theater for a new audience, directing some Shakespeare plays, including um, Titus Andronicus, which is a famously gory, brutal one. And then uh, one of the other notable things is that in 1996, uh, Lincoln Center staged the original theatrical work, Juan Darian, which she had written with her longtime collaborator and partner, Elliot Goldenthal. Um, And she had made that piece earlier, but Lincoln Center did it. And that was nominated for five Tony Awards. And so then, you know, I want to, I'm going to avoid the kind of like, and then she did this and then she did this and then she did this. She was working on operas. She was doing some theater pieces, but like she was distinctly a part of this kind of like downtown, interesting avant-garde, like Shakespeare, but not puppetry all over the place. Like, She was doing her own thing, I think it's fair to say. Also, notably, I saw *Wandarian* because my cousin Jamie was in it. And of course, your cousin was in it. I know. My step-cousin, technically, but yeah. And uh, also, it's like really kind of weird and dark. And it's like a a jaguar Jesus figure who like, I think it's like crucified and like whipped. And I remember it being like very dark for like a, I guess I was like 12 years old at this time. But
0: yeah,
1: anyway. And
0: that will bring us to Putting It Together.
1: Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art.
0: Where we talk about how the show was literally put together. So obviously you've got Julie Taymor, who has this very eclectic uh, career. Um, and then you have Disney, which is going through, um, the period known, uh, by uh, collectively in the entertainment industry as the Disney Renaissance, um, which is Disney has basically been churning out like a very successful animated movie a year for starting with little mermaid in then into beauty and the beast, Aladdin. Um, and they're just like firing on all cylinders basically. And they've kind of uh, regained the pedestal of excellence that, um, they seem to have lost after the death of walt disney uh which was led by and there are a whole lot of documentaries and things about this but um ceo michael eisner um you know very much of uh, you know the face of that in many ways of the of the larger disney like brand uh Expanding, And so with that, with the massive success of Beauty and the Beast, Disney, um, uh, you know, put it on Broadway and created Disney Theatrical Productions. Um, and that launched in 1994 to um, huge financial success. Um, critics and and the New York theater community were quite divided, it seemed, um, about whether or not it was good that Disney was coming into Broadway. But they also, as a part of this, agreed to buy and renovate the new Amsterdam theater. Um And uh, Michael Eisner was sure that the Lion King was the next property um, that should be turned into a stage musical and uh, charged Tom Schumacher uh, with uh, making it to make it happen. Basically, one of the producers um, that had worked on the animated films, along with Peter Schneider, he kind of said to those those two, like, hey, like, go make this happen. And Schumacher was like, this is a literally terrible idea. It's the worst idea ever. Uh, And multiple accounts say that Michael Eisner said, do you just need to go have a brilliant idea? Um, and so Schumacher um, turned to Julie Taymor, who he had kind of interacted with um, during w- and during an LA Arts Festival or had seen some of her work and and was aware of her and and went to her and and was like, okay, this is the brilliant idea. Like let's go to a very innovative avant-garde, you know, director and artist. So she takes this. Um, takes the idea basically of doing the Lion King on stage and and insists that it's not just going to be a cartoon on stage. uh, And instead really worked on adapting the script of the Lion King into a theatrical experience. Uh, So the things that she noted, as we had talked about was it was important to her to make Simba a much more three-dimensional character and illustrate his journey in the lost years. Uh, And this included the inclusion of Simba's nightmare and Timon nearly drowning in the waterfall until Like Simba saves him and sees the ghost of his father and all like, you know, or like hallucinates kind of that like and remembers what happened to him as a kid. And and she also wanted to do the same with Nala and elevate her in the plot and make her more three dimensional, clearing up and adding to uh, some layers to her departure from Pride Rock. Um, and as a deliberate way to escape from scars like predatory kind of advances toward her. Um, in addition to the, like what the movie says, which is that she was searching for food. Uh, and she also makes the decision to change Rafiki uh. To a female shaman baboon, uh, and really make that character the spiritual center of the show. And very keyly singing um the circle of life, which everyone had kind of previously with the movies, like, who's actually singing this? It had been like a debate during the during the making of movies, like, who's actually singing this song? And no one really said. Uh so she kind of well, fixed that problem, which is a fair, you know, it's like the narrator, but there's not a narrator. It's that yeah, thing. It's-
1: it's a good change also like i remember hearing something amazing about the movie and like can you feel the love tonight and yeah that that the original idea was just like timon would sing it the whole time and then yeah. it was, like having well elton
0: john was like you've ruined my song i wanted yeah. to create a like pop ballad like and you've ruined it
1: <laughs> yeah so so i guess that sort of like disembodied voice singing is uh as uh, present in the movie yes anyway. Continue. So
0: so she takes that so she takes that and um and then using the concept album Rhythm of the Pride Lands which had come out like in addition to The Lion King Tamor and the team selected a few numbers uh to be given English lyrics to go into the show to expand characters in the score and uh in, in a number of cases Timor like uh, elected to keep like the chorus lyrics in the native Zulu language because she felt that the emotions and feelings were more important than the actual words that they were saying so that is you know part of the fabric of of the show and the language of it um is is this you know it is, is the native languages of uh um African tribes and countries
1: okay wait can I just pause you for a second to say yep. can we briefly talk about the insane original pitch for our listeners let me just give this background so Tom Schumacher came to my grad school class and told this story and I was like wow this is crazy and then I saw uh Spider-Man and I was like this is very accurate and then they talk about it in a piece about the like 25 25th anniversary but oh, okay. apparently what um uh, what happened when Julie Taymor was like b- figuring out how to tell the story and to and uh cuz what she said to Tom Schumacher was like not enough happens in this story in the movie um and then she ended up doing the deepening that uh Michael just talked about with all this um good stuff but she like needed to grab onto it herself. So she had this idea that like when Simba is a teenager, he goes out into the desert and then he sees this like shimmering uh, mirage, the city. And like it. what Tom Schumacher had said was like, it's Simba goes to Vegas. And then I'm, I'm just going to read this uh, from the New York times because I really can't do it justice. Okay. So, um, This was her pitch for act two. Uh, I thought this would be a ball to create. A city where you have half human, half animals. Humanimals. I used all kinds of lounge lizards, alley cats, and I made a substitute father figure in Papa Croc, who is this Don King character. It's so insane now when I tell it that I have to kind of laugh, but it was freeing. They put... Gladiator, uh, they put Simba as a gladiator in the ring, and he becomes the Lion King, the toughest boxer, wrestler, the biggest star, and all the pussycats love him. Timon and Pumbaa are caught and are getting room to be put in the gladiator ring. And then I made a character called Natasha, who is a leopard, half human, and half car, that was rushing from the Disneyland Vegasy place back to Scar, who had sold the water rights to Papa Croc. (laughs) Nala comes to find Simba was supposed to fight Timon and Pumbaa in the ring and the four of them get together, go back. And there's a fight with the hyenas. <laughs> so, and apparently someone said that she pitched this and the jaws were all on the floor. And then basically like, it was good because it signaled to the Disney people that like, this was not going to be like people in fursuits, just being the Lion King, but also like, I am amazed. I mean, such credit to Disney that she came in pitching this and basically, and the way Tom Schumacher had said it too, was that it was sort of like almost a critique of like Disneyland as well, that it was like about the capitalism of that world. Um, Which by the way, when you saw Spider-Man, which she did famously the big old flop down the, after Lion King, you saw like all of these ideas that she must like, like Spider-Man basically was a version of, a similar kind of pitch it's like it was about everything but spider-man and so i was like yes that is what happened i believe this story now anyway now uh you may resume but i just needed to say that insanity because oh my god can you imagine if that were in the second act of the lion king
0: i mean it's also yeah it has been written out of so many of like the histories of it that like it's it's an interesting like you would never know in some way I know. you would never know that that was what happened yeah i mean um, really
1: truly a credit to both parties that she was like here's my idea and they were like no but we still want you to work on it and right, she was exactly. like cool i'm <laughs> not doing any of that let's proceed let's go
0: uh, wild. Yeah. <laughs> wild so anyway but yeah so she was very insistent on you know finding the human like saying this was a human drama and animal guys. Um, and it became central to a non-literal adaptation in the blending, the blending of all kinds of puppetry that doesn't hide the human manipulation, something that she called a double event. And that's in quotes uh, in particular. Um, but so the puppetry is literally drawn from all over the world. There's Asian influence. there's some African influence. There's eighteenth century broke European staging tricks for the stampede. It's like it literally is like this, just deluge of different places things people it's like almost madness to like think about if we were to like list all of the different like things that are kind of beg borrowed stolen inspired by like whatever it is bananas but she can track all of it there's tons of great like things about it but she wrote a book about making the experience called like lion king pride rock on broadway has lots of pictures i'm going to hold it up in case we ever release our recordings as visual things but like it's a very like coffee table book that is has sketches and like it's almost like a journal of hers as she like goes through this process but doesn't include um you know the uh, vegas in the desert um and so this all culminates in an august 1996 workshop where the main focus was to get the book and the songs together um but she also wanted to see where some of the key like and the producers um, executives like wanted to see where some of the key staging constant like wanted to see some of the key stage concepts demonstrated basically so the reading portion went very well um but executives were not sold at all on the prototypes that she presented for the puppetry um, and much of the like quote unquote double event. So she was like, yeah, we haven't had any rehearsal time. You can't like throw that at people. Like we kind of need to do a dedicated thing that is just that. So this led to an early like February, 1987 workshop that had was two weeks and it resulted in a presentation of some of the scenes on the stage of the new Amsterdam. Uh, So I think if I'm remembering correctly, they staged like the first scene between Scar and Mufasa and Zazu, the um like major domo. They staged that and then they staged um something else with Simba and Timo. I don't remember what the other one was, but they staged like two scenes. And they basically performed each scene twice. So once they performed it with the puppets and costume. Um, and then one without the puppets. And it was a stressful couple weeks for everybody involved, it says, because they had to figure out how to make this puppetry work and da-da-da-da. But the gamble paid off and she was allowed to go forward with the puppets uh in the more quote extreme and unique approach. Um, and then literally Eisner said, quote, bigger risk, but the artistic reward promises to be bigger too, which I, I think sums it up perfectly and is exactly right um so in rehearsals um you know as annika alluded to with the whole like jacques of it all um she uses ideographs a lot to help to pick characters which as a director i just found to be an interesting technique that she talked about which is like if you can sum up your character into like one pose and position like what would that be um, and using that to kind of evoke all these different emotions and different things. So that's something she works on a lot with the actors, as well as the fact that she's like designing all of these masks and puppets and figuring out how it all works. And, um, I mean, I can only imagine that it was like chaos. Um, but like, and a lot of the like assistants that worked on it were like, yeah, it was like complete chaos, but no one has more energy than Julie Taymor. So you just kind of go with that. So they do their out of town tryout in Minneapolis, which, um. They picked that theater because it had just been renovated for like to be able to host Phantom of the Opera, which I just thought was kind of funny. So it was like, you know, the right literal place. Um, And Tamor has emergency gallbladder surgery on day one of tech. Um, so she then, because it's such a tech heavy show, like they got into town and they were like trying some things out. And then she went back to the hotel and it was like, Oh, I have crazy pain. And it ends up having to have gallbladder surgery. So they literally, I'm obsessed with this. And there are pictures of this. They literally installed like a leather lazy boy recliner, like on top of all of the seats in the orchestra so that she could recover like in a somewhat like like reclined position and do what she was supposed to do by the doctor's orders, but not like they could continue tech, which I was like, I insist on having a lazy boy, like in all tech processes. Like, like amazing. How, how amazing it literally looks like, like it's like, a, like one AMC recliner is like put in the middle of all the things. So um, it's obviously a show that is like riddled with technical mishaps. And there's, you know, they have three weeks of tech, uh, and there are lots of things that go wrong in in various ways, um, but audiences fell in love with the show pretty immediately. It was and it was clear that it would be a huge hit. And I I think it's also interesting um, to talk about like for all that Disney as a corporation was going through this renaissance and had, had all the success with film and animated films in particular and like doing all this, like all of the people who were involved with the Lion King from the Disney, like corporate perspective talked about how like all of that, all the animated stuff was great, but the special experience of being in that theater while like the circle of life happened and you have audiences that are like cheering and crying at the beauty and all the things like outmatches, like anything that they'd ever experienced in their professional lives, which I I just, I think that's wonderful to share as a, as it comes to like just advocating for theater, as <laughs> like we live in a world where I feel like the New York Times and Washington Post and everyone's like, we're all talking about how regional theater is dying and is theater dying. And I'm like, no, theater is special. Theater can be special and be very cool. And I so I I just wanted to share that in this particular moment. Um, because I it was it's very lovely to read their like reports on the experience of while this was bananas and in so so many ways made absolutely no sense that this like big corporate conglomerate was one coming to broadway but two employing this like avant-garde downtown artist to do this intensely commercial thing like these worlds kind of like collided in the best possible way
1: yeah and Um, i mean it it worked like you watch a clip of circle of life and it makes you cry i mean it's so be- there's so many creative ideas in the first 30 seconds of that thing that it is it, yeah it's, it's overwhelming I, I, it is it is kind of you you just like every single thing that comes out at you like is so beautiful and brilliant and it comes down the eye i mean like you're totally right it is magical to be i mean i in, in a moment like that I,
0: I truly and to be and also to be a part of the first group of people that ever saw that Yeah. Like, come on. Like when it, like you go and they're even, even though people, I'm sure a lot of you, a lot of listeners have seen the show. If you haven't, I highly encourage you to go at some point, whether it's on tour or whatever. Cause like circle of life, I'm not the only person to say this is like worth the price of admission. It is an, it is an amazing spectacle uh, filled with art and artistry and beauty. And like, I was just talking with a coworker that I was like, honestly, and this is like a bit of a take, but like, they could not even bring out all the puppets. They could just do the opening calls between Rafiki and the, like, Antelope and all the Leboem. And you could almost just do that. And I think it would be, like, (laughs) one of the most spiritual, incredible experiences in a theater. Like, it just, it all combines to this, like, powerful imagery. And, like, it just is, it's extraordinary. So beautiful.
1: Although, one of my favorite things that I read about the the Minnesota out-of-town tryout was that, they because like you know those puppets are all like teaching all the puppetry and stuff was like you had to get dancers and blah blah anyway they they were figuring out how it all worked and um one of my favorite details was that the giraffes often would would fall like the the legs would slip because they were on crutches in the front and then they couldn't they couldn't get up themselves so they had stage managers who were in pith helmets who would have to come out on stage and like. just like pick up these. And like, you know what? Like it's so, I, there's nothing that makes me happier than like stage man- management teams that are in like the barest hint of a costume to like sort of make, and the idea yes. of like this incredible, gorgeous artistic number. And then like some guy all in black with a pith helmet on comes to like pick up a giraffe Makes me very happy. Well,
0: and like the elephant wouldn't fit through the door of the theater. I mean, like they have tons of things that like go wrong. And so actually most of the changes that happen in terms of development of the show are technical in nature. Simplifying some things, going back to the drawing board on other things. Like that's a lot of what changes in the show. Um, And there's also a great story of Julie Taymor. I think while it was in Minneapolis, I think it's in Minneapolis, goes after she felt like in a good enough place about the show to like not watch it from the audience she watches she just goes backstage and watches backstage and she and she says in the book and i think she's right it's like it was one of the most profound artistic experiences of my life to witness the other show that no one gets to see because you just have mountains of people doing what is like seemingly what weeks ago seemed seemingly impossible and unlike anything that anyone had ever done and yet there was such cohesion and like teamwork and the brilliance of all of that she was like, and she was like i got on the like the god mic the backstage mic after and was like thank you all for giving for making this dream come true and like the madness that you've gone through to make it happen like it's so i i think it's yeah. very cool in so many ways so the show is reportedly budgeted at costing 18 million dollars in 1997 uh, that was what it was budgeted as having cost and reportedly cost twice as much um And, uh, you know, it goes to the Tonys. It's up against Ragtime in one of the great Tony battles. Um, You know, it's it's um, it's pretty, you know, it wins the Tony for Best Musical. Julie Taymor wins a Tony for Best Director of a Musical, becomes the first woman to do so. Um, It's obviously still running to this day. It has is the most successful individual piece of entertainment property um, on the face of the planet the stage version of the lion king um the lion king as a whole entity is also like crazy um, because you have the movie then you have the remake and you've got this and like it just and it is it is a cash cow um yeah and, like some the reports are all over the place about but like billions we're talking billions of dollars in, in money uh and the last little asterisk on that is that disney theatrical productions to this day runs solely on the profits of the lion king they do not have any other funding from disney it is just from the profits of the lion king that, that is the wild it is it is the it is the backbone of that entire very corporate 100 plus employee theater corporation unlike anything that actually exists in the theater
1: i mean i love that i also i read somewhere that it's been on every continent except Antarctica. Um, which sounds all yeah. right yeah
0: sounds and I right. have to say
1: you know that remake of the movie which maybe I yeah. shouldn't say this because well thank you That I haven't seen it but like it just seems like the least creative idea in the world made me think that I'm actually glad that they haven't done a movie of the musical like they haven't done a sort of screen cap in the way that Hamilton did because I And and I think the Hamilton one is great, but I think Hamilton's a very different show, and I, I feel like they must have considered that, considering how they're doing every other version of uh, Lion King, everything. And I'm very, very glad that I would imagine they've made that decision because they want to maintain the theatricality of what is a very theatrical theatrical show, and I think that's the right call. But, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, that's just a pure speculation. My no,
0: but, no, the the movie that came out i guess was it in 2019 that they did that live action that came out um i i really felt like it was a huge missed opportunity artistically because it they're a part i mean certainly definitely the circle of life but other things are basically shot for shot it is a shot for shot remake of the animated film of 25 years prior and uh, you know I, what was shocking to me was that like You, this property in and of itself has proven that you can drastically reimagine it in a way that is artistically exciting and thrilling. And like you could have just done that with, yeah, that you could have given someone else a different, like have someone else look at Circle of Life a different way than the iconic animation. Instead, you just replace the iconic imagination with literal imagery. And that's like it's, not nearly as exciting. It's just it's like you've done something. You had an opportunity to do something that could have been very different and very cool, and like that's not the opportunity you took. And I that makes me sad.
1: But it's net it's negative creative. It feels negative creative. Yeah. Where it's like Lion King is such a big artistic swing, the the musical, and then like that movie feels like, what if it's just animals? And yeah, we you know no.
0: So with that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside.
1: He Lives in You. What's
0: inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside.
1: All right, so let's dive into They Live in You, which is a song that is new for the musical. It wasn't in the movie, and I I really didn't want to do one of the movie songs because I feel like that's not quite the same as a song written for the musical. Those songs are iconic. Their context is slightly different, although Elton John is very capable of writing great musical songs, whatever, whatever. You get it. So um, the songs written for the show are, I'm going to be honest, a little bit of a mixed bag. There are some that are uh, not so great, like The Morning Report, which was cut after a few years in the show. Um, But I think that this one is really, really successful. And actually, it's funny because I feel like it's so important for the message of the show. It's really an answer to the circle of life. It deepens that thought that it's, it's kind of actually hard for me to imagine it not being in the movie. I've kind of like retroactive retroactively written it back in there. Um, So they live in you. Let's talk about it. So the context is that Simba has, this is the first act, uh, midway through the first act. Simba has gotten into trouble at the elephant graveyard. Mufasa has had to rescue him. Um, And this is a moment after that scene where Mufasa has kind of had to explain to Simba that there's a difference between being brave and being full of bravado and also like basically a father-son moment about how there are consequences of your actions. Um, And Simba says uh, a line about how much he loves Mufasa and they're kind of playing around and says they're they'll always be together. And so that is kind of the impetus for this song because Mufasa clearly knows that he is not going to be around forever. Um, And so it's a, it's a father son moment about death and parenthood, you know, all of those fun things. So, and then this song will reappear in the second act uh, very meaningfully when Simba adult Simba is kind of lost and feels he's been away from the pride lands and, um, has to is being nudged to go back by Nala and um, doesn't feel worthy of it. And Rafiki will sing a reprise of this song to remind Simba that Mufasa is with him. Mufasa at that point has died. Spoiler. Um, And uh, I mean that then there's that moment of theatricality when Mufasa's face comes, Oh my God, it's so good. Whatever. Anyway. So that, that is a, it is a very important song to the plot because in the musical, not only is it this, Uh, deepening of the Mufasa Simba relationship and the concept of like the circle of life and, and your life will continue. Death will happen. Like the people who you have lost are there with you and like bringing you forward. But also later it is, it is going to literally be the thing that that causes Simba to realize that he can go back and can kind of accept his fate as the King and um, his, his rightful place. So, so I think it's a beautiful song. I really do. So, um, let us talk about it. Oh, also the other thing I wanted to say is that, uh, in a show that has a lot of like complex, beautiful theatrical moments and things happening, this, the staging of this scene is completely simple. It's basically just these two characters and and grass and stars. So the focus is fully on them. The song is, is the centerpiece. Um, and there's this really beautiful moment, which is not really what I need to talk about in this analysis, but I will anyway, which is that um, Mufasa, I, lo- I just love this so much. Mufasa has that, you know, big mask that kind of sits on top of his face and it looks like a crown. And he actually takes that off before he sings the song to Simba. So it's, it's underscoring how much this is not a king t- talking to the prince it is a father talking to his son so it's a really beautiful intimate moment all right let's start <music> All right, so right away, we get this beautiful image in the orchestration. It's both quiet and full. We got this interesting kind of like, um, I'm not totally sure what what instruments that is there. Um, but it, it feels like rain, maybe, or something blowing across the plains. Like, it sounds quiet, and it sounds like night, even before Mufasa says anything. But it also feels like something important is going to happen. It's not just a regular quiet night where... You know, everything is is the same as always something it's momentous, but also giving us a very good sense of where we are about, you know, the scale is smaller than other songs. It's certainly not like the Pride Lands and the the big circle of life moment um, and Pride Rock. It's just an empty, quiet plain in Africa. But of course, there's nothing, you know. There's no place in Africa, there's no time in Africa where like nothing is really happening. So it's just like it's celebrating the kind of beauty of night, which you don't really get a lot of. And then, of course, this chorus comes in and it's so beautiful because it sounds like what the song is going to be about. Like maybe these are the voices of the ancestors who are watching Simba Mufasa in this moment. Um, And the line that they're saying is Zulu and translates as the royal lion wears his leopard spots, which... I take to mean that Simba, the royal lion, isn't being himself yet. He's a lion, but he's sort of wearing the spots of a leopard. Um, I'm not totally sure if that's the intention of that line. I read somewhere else that it might be about the like the royal lion is wearing a, a royal cape because a leopard cape was like a thing that a king would wear. Um, but I, I'm, I like my interpretation because I kind of feel like you. You get this simple melody, but it also feels a little bit tense and unfinished. You know, it's like stepping up, it's going back down it's stepping up, it's going back down. Um, it feels like they're there and they're present, but they're watching Simba and they're not totally sure yet. It's a little tiny bit of tension there. And then there's this beat that comes in with their voices, this bonk, bonk that feels like a heartbeat. So that's adding to that sense. Um, that is, everything is a little bit unsettling, which I think is right for where Simba is in this moment. The idea that ancestral kings watching him is uncomfortable and a little bit scary for this child who really isn't ready for this responsibility, as we know from watching him play around um, and get into a lot of uh, danger. Night,
0: and the spirit of life
1: calling. Oh, oh, so as soon as Mufasa sings it feels different the voices go away because he is effortlessly in charge of this narrative and more than that when he says that night and the spirit of light life are singing they sing so he's a true king he commands even the night and the spirit of these past kings and even in this moment where he isn't being a king he's taken his crown off he just is what he is talking about like he is Exactly, the person who is comfortable in his authority. And we've seen that in this song. And I think it's notable that he tells Simba what they're saying, these voices, but they don't say it themselves. It highlights Mufasa's message that he will one day be one of these ancestral spirits. So he's like one of them, he speaks their language, but also that Simba isn't ready to hear this message himself yet. It isn't something that the spirits are just saying to Simba, it has to come through Mufasa as it will later as well. Like he is not, he is not a king. He is not ready to be amongst these spirits who are with them, even though they will be with him. um, This is very much a a different sort of form of communication that's happening here. Um, Also the message is mamela, which means listen, which I really love because that is what Simba needs to do. He just needs to sort of like learn and take it all in. And of course, I mean, Listen and connect. I think those are the as we've seen a lot in this podcast. The message of many, many a piece of theater. And a voice with the fear of a child asking, "Oh, oh, 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 So now we get this line about the voice with the fear of a child which i assume refers to Simba. Honestly, these lyrics are not my favorite. Uh they're a little what i would say is first crafty to me. Um they sound like they're meaningful, but i don't think the actual meaning is quite clear. Um that happens a lot where you kind of like it, we'll hear a little bit more about this where it's like, "Oh yes, of course," like in the truth in the water, but like what is what exactly are we talking about here? So, anyway, But um, we're also in a kind of like spiritual realm for the song. So I guess I could make that argument too, that we're not totally talking about literal things and I should uh, get over it. Um, And then of course we get the singing, their, their message in the clear. Mufasa has introduced them, but now they're getting a little moment of their own. Um, It's, it's kind of, again, it's like the way that they are interacting with Mufasa and with this moment and with Simba, it's all like very beautiful. It's, um, very clearly, like who who is introducing them and where where they are um to be heard. It's it's really cool. Wait, 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 wait. There's no mountain too great. Hear these words and have
0: faith. Oh,
1: have faith. So we get that gorgeous echo on wait. All the voices echoing Mufasa. Um, and it, and it, and it doesn't, it just sounds like a stone dropped in a pond, like just rippling out. Right. It doesn't quite sound like a normal echo, um, which I think gives you this kind of sonic impression of the vastness of where they are, the sky, the spirit realm. Um, but also this plane, you know, just on this open plane, um, there's so much, out there that Mufasa is talking about here. You have to wait. And then it pulls you back so you really hear this next line there's no mountain too great. Hear these words and have faith. Um because again his message is very important that he wants Simba to hear here. It's it, it's very simple but it's also extremely important. So he needs the he needs Simba to be paying attention um and not be kind of a squirmy little cub which he which he has been in the scene up until now. Hey, Live in you. Oh, this is so gorgeous. We get this gorgeous, gorgeous moment when the chorus of the music builds, the chorus singing that, hey, la, mama, hey, like, and it's just like, you feel it just rising, 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 and then breaks into this beautiful major chord place for the chorus. Um, just such a joyous moment, which is a beautiful place to be for this chorus. It could feel large and momentous considering what Mufasa is saying. It could feel a little intimidating. Up until this point, there's been a little bit of sort of like tension, a little bit of darkness in this tune, in this moment, like even with this beautiful thing, we're we're, we're aware that this is kind of something new and something a little bit sad, um, potentially that Mufasa is, is saying something that is bittersweet. But here it breaks into this like, ultimate celebration of something really beautiful which is what this chorus is it's a father who knows he won't be here forever telling his son that everyone who is gone will live on in him and so the chorus is supporting him in what feels like almost like a dance they're singing this kind of like um joyous chorus with with him and it's just great um and then towards the end it pulls down a little bit to be more intimate and a little bit more bittersweet we go back to this place Because ultimately, it is bittersweet. Like, as much as it is a joyous message and a great moment of Mufasa's parenthood to be able to present this as a really happy thing, like, all of these one, you know, how wonderful that all of the kings of the past, that everyone you've loved is with you, but also, like, it's kind of a bummer, you know, especially for a kid to hear. It's a hard thing for a parent to tell a kid that, like, someday they will die, you know, which is not exactly what Mufasa is saying, but he's basically saying that, like, you know, Someday he will be gone, but him and, and all of these other kings of the past, all these other ancestors, people you love are there with him, are there with Simba. And again, this, this is how this song really feels like the flip side of the continuation of the circle of life, right? It's uh, the circle that we talked about, Julie Taymor really felt it was important, the theme, the life cycle, but it's so much more specific to these characters in this song, Um it gives it a a place to live in the narrative um, that is so important for these characters beyond just the idea that like they are animals on the African plane. And there is, you know, there is a lot of death and life and horror and things like, you know, that, that life continues. This is a very personal story about, you know, a son who feels so guilty about what he thinks he has done to his father that he, he has to like renounce his entire life basically, and then come to terms with that and take his own place. Um, So it's really nice. And also like it, it does beautifully foreshadow the moment in act two when Simba will literally see Mufasa in his own reflection, because obviously he will, you know, he now looks like Mufasa because he's a fully grown lion, but also like just setting up that idea that like they're living in you, but also like in your reflection is, is me. So the rest of the song is a repeat of what we've heard already and this is a song that's interspersed with little tiny like moments of dialogue for Simba and, and Mufasa that we're not really hearing but it's okay that that it's simple and it's repeated because it's a simple message and a fairly simple melody but one that is so key to this world to the show and to these characters um, and it's such a beautiful moment to just live in this gorgeous melody with this chorus singing and to have this, this message that is a beautiful beautiful message and like um, Julie Taymor tells a beautiful story about like a family that came to the show and and they had lost their child and brought their other child and was a, a little worried, were a little worried that it was maybe too soon. And then their son, after this song said like that their daughter was in the stars, you know? So it's really like, it's a very effective, beautiful message that the people we love and lost, And who have come before us are still watching over us and living within us. And I think the song is just a really beautiful showcase of that message and a really good plot, plot and character moment for Mufasa and Simba. So I don't think I gave adequate credit to the writers of this song. This is Mark Mancina, Jay Rifkin, and Lebo M, um, who wrote this particular uh, number. Elton John had nothing to do with this one. So this is a great addition to the show. And then also Tina Turner covered it later which is a detail i love who doesn't want a tina turner cover of something so um but yes gorgeous song giving us a lot and um well done and that will
0: bring us to one of our favorite segments how do you solve a problem like maria
1: how do you solve a problem like maria
0: where we talk about some of the issues with the lion king both internally and externally so i'm gonna we're gonna set aside um the fact that it is a you know quite white creative team telling you know an african story it in many ways it is quite like they're it's not like they're doing it without the <laughs> without the voices of people from africa and whatnot but it is a mishmash of a ton of things and i i think that's a wonderful artistic thing to kind of actually embrace that it is a universal story of sorts um so we're actually not going to talk about that in the segment i'm just kind of putting that um that cap on it um but I do want to have I do want to have a conversation that I know we've had with other shows, which is, I you know, as I the first time I saw it when I was a kid, I was and, and and forgive us in advance. Typically, well, not forgive us just to let you into the process. It's not like a script of The Lion King is like available for us to look at. So in some ways, like it's hard to analyze the text of The Lion King because it doesn't really exist. It's not like you can license it and do it. We are in some ways. I know me for sure. I am going to respond to Julie Taymor's production of The Lion King um, because that is part of it, Um, and I think that's reasonable in the case of this show um, because of all the things that we've talked about. But the first time I saw it, I was like over. I was a lot younger uh, and was uh, as we talked about Circle of Life. I think is maybe the most incredible thing that's ever been staged, like staging moment of all time, like just incredible. And the spectacle is amazing. And then I went back after I'd been in college a little bit and a little more knowledgeable, a little more jaded. And I was like, I don't know that this is like really that great. It feels like overblown children's theater a little bit. Like it's it's such a mishmash. I'm not sure how I feel about it. And so I've kind of sat with that coloring of it for a little while. And then I, in preparation for this program, uh, watched a slime tutorial of The Lion King, um, which if you don't know what a slime tutorial is, that is the um, way that uh, if you go on YouTube and want to see f- a full bootleg, um, a full videotape, um, and not even videotape, a video of a Broadway show, try typing in that uh, the title and then slime tutorial and you may just find it. I don't know how, I don't know if Gen Z came up with that, I don't know who came up with that, but that is the kind of coded term. Um, and so I watched the original like 97 like a very very rough you know what home video from 1997 of someone bootlegging the lion king and i while i am blown away by the artistry and i'm blown away by the spectacle i do sit there and i'm like this script is very thin and my kingdom for a conversation with actors julie taymore my kingdom for some actual good acting um I was there was a lot that I was like, I don't know about this from a like just material perspective. Um, and so I, I, I'm curious for your thoughts just on that. Generally, I know it's a conversation we've had before, but I think it is particularly interesting in the case of the Lion King because the physical production is so excellent. And because so much of the spectacle is fresh and new and exciting and visceral and like all the things that are you know every possible positive ad adjective um but i don't know if that underlying material is very strong um i don't think about that when like I could the animated movie i'm like yeah it's pretty efficient those vocal performance you know the performances are good like you know blah blah it's obviously very different but so what do you think about the the quality of the material itself for the lion king
1: well it is hard because it is, we cannot really look at at a script per se. Um, But I guess my question would be, you know, does it matter or does it work? You know, like, well, those are two separate questions. Does it matter because does it work? Um, And, you know, I think part of the reason that the movie works so well, and again, not to talk about the movie, even though it has a sort of very like basic plot line is because sometimes all you need is a basic plot line like the 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 thought of the kind of hero with a thousand faces which i you know if if you're not a familiar if you're listening to this and you're not familiar with what that is that is a, a famous mythologist named uh, Joseph Campbell who studied the myths of many 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 different cultures and identified what he called the monomyth uh which is a basic story That many, 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 many myths have about a, usually it's a man, but it doesn't have to be, you know, like a a person who is in a different place and has a calling to their true identity and has a spiritual helper. And like, there's a refusal of the path and like, there's just elements along the way. Um, Star Wars famously is just this um, in space. So um
0: and if you don't know that, we would like to have a conversation with your ninth grade English teacher because this does feel like something that I know, <laughs> but it is fascinating. It, it continues to be fascinating. So I love hearing you talk about it, but just to say that
1: yeah.
0: it like, may be something that you heard once but forgot, and that is totally okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, sometimes you you just need a simple story and then you can put it in a different place or put a different uh framework around it, and it will still kind of work because it's kind of telling fundamental human or animal apparently um realities and uh so and, and it's funny because I saw the lion king but I haven't seen it in years and in reading what Julie Tamor wanted to add to it I was like well you know Rafiki becoming more of a shaman like A plus some of the changes with Nala A plus I do remember when I and then there were funny stories too about like it took them forever to change the set At one point, so they had to like, write. it was like very old school musical theater where they had to write a new scene for Zazu and Timon um, because they had to cover a scene change, which is what used to happen, obviously, with with theater when they would like have the scene in front of the curtain so they could change the set behind the curtain. Um, So it's funny that it heralded to that stuff. But so so I will say, like, you know, simple story. okay. Um, but also like there are theater artists and there are directors, especially who manage to transcend whatever the material is to some degree and make the experience of watching the thing not just about the text on the page. Um and I think Julie Taymor is one of those people. So it's interesting too because like I I mean now that I after I mean Spider-Man again is not the show we're talking about in this podcast but like it, it it has become such a key part of my like understanding of Julie Taymor as a director because that felt like if Julie Taymor's ego is Lion King, then her Id is Spider Man. It felt like I you were able to see so clearly like her weaknesses as an artist, which is like a complete lack of like focus on one thing. So actually, in some ways. I think the idea that Lion King, that she did ultimately have to work within this very, like the framework of the movie story and a very simple story relatively, and that she couldn't go crazy with all these other things she wanted to explore with like land rights and water rights and, and, you know, capitalism and, you know, Papa Croc and what human animals and like all this stuff, like actually was kind of the perfect match of things because it Keeping her focused and working within a framework allowed her to like leash her in unbelievable creativity to towards a purpose, which succeeded beyond wildest. Dist- I mean, like, there's like again, it's like, I mean, we said it when the but like I can think of like when the when the face comes together in the water, mm, and yes, the, and, like uh, stunning, you know, even the moments when like Pumba's farting and he turns around and those little like things that they have the inflatable like cactus like d- dies, you know, like there's such moments of cleverness all throughout this story that in some ways having a simple story um, uh, gives you space to celebrate those other things because you're not like spending your time as you did with Spider-Man, frankly, like being like, wait, what is happening? I'm sorry. Like, who are these people? What is happening here? What like you can't appreciate the artistry of something when you're completely lost in inside the story. Um, So a simple, maybe basic story, maybe not the best like directing of actors, maybe not that stuff. Like normally I would be like, no, that is key importance. But here it's like, I don't know if that is key importance as long as you have a sort of symbiosis between like, do you know where you are in the story and like the 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 magical elements of the of the spectacle of it um coming together for a singular purpose like are do I have notes I'm sure I do have notes I even remember at the time when I saw it and I was like I I mean I just remember feeling like there was a lot of like it's not a short show by any stretch of the imagination and I remember being like wow we are spending a lot of time like doing like the lioness dances and you're like okay I don't need this artistry on top of all the other arts that's in here you know like I I think we don't need the time for the like dancing in this show like just give us the Fabric and the warthogs and the like, you know, the stampedes and the stuff. Like, give us the stuff and the story, not the uh, like, not the dancing and the like, we don't need every art form. And, well, it's uh, like
0: the, the, the aerial dancing that was in Can You Feel the Love Tonight? And they, there's just a lot of oh, things. Yeah. And I think they've gone back in and they cut, they have cut like 10 minutes out of the show since yeah. it first premiered, which also includes, I think they cut Morning Report, which was like a number for Sazu that thinking oh, yeah. they added into the movie at one point um or it was cut from the movie anyway whatever the there are lots of things that like it eschews traditional musical theater in a lot of ways like in terms structurally in some ways like which it feels in many like it feels like an opera or a ballet or mm-hmm. like something it feels more like an art piece than it does a musical to me which is not inherently a bad thing it just like there are even like traditional, like musical theater benchmarks that I'm like, not sure that it hits. And like, so that on top of like, you know, and I'm, I'm picking on the, you know, I'm picking on individual actors and this one performance that was taped 25 years ago, but like, you know, some of the things I'm like, Oh, that's like, you, it's actually not terrible dialogue. You're just not like digging in. I just need you to dig a little bit deeper into it Mm -hmm. instead of like, and so that's, I think where my note lies. Cause like, it's, I think it can be quite, obviously it is quite powerful in, in many ways, like the imagery. And I mean, come on, even like when Simba, when like Pride rock, like reappears and he like slowly climbs that like circuit. I mean, that's like, come on. Like you, you're just, and the epicness of the score and the, the, just all the things it's like the totality of this is. Breathtaking and amazing. And certainly groundbreaking you know i think in some ways you know i don't know if it premiered today if we would find it as groundbreaking but i think we probably would because like if it didn't exist like what where would we be in terms of some of the theatricality that has been brought into musical theater you know what i mean so it is a really it's a fascinating spectacle in that way because it is so art driven and not just oh we have money let's spend it do you know what i mean and like at least that's how it feels to me it does not feel like oh we just want to throw money at this problem it feels like we're in pursuit of an artistic vision
1: okay yes to everything you say and also i mean yes I, i totally agree too that it doesn't i feel like you do sometimes see shows and you're like wow i see a lot of money on that stage but not in service of storytelling like like not to throw another Disney property under the bus, but like the costumes in Aladdin are astounding. They're like beaded within an inch of their lives. It's like beautiful. But I found myself just thinking, like, wow, those are there's a lot of money in those costumes. You know, it wasn't like there wasn't like so okay not to bring it back to dramaturgy, but like the, you know, the dramaturgy, like everything on the stage ideally should be telling a story. And Lion King, in addition to being like visually stunning and theatrically beautiful in terms of like those moving moments that you you say, like the other thing that's so striking about it, I think, is that there is storytelling in every single thing that's on that stage. And a lot of the things on that stage are like not complicated. You know, like yes. Yeah, yes. You yes. know, like it's a piece of fabric that's being pulled through a hole in the ground, like or that is the
0: eye through the eyelid of a mask, and that is tears. You know, what yes, I mean? like,
1: it's it is totally. That, it's you know, amazing. It's amazing. So it's like it's it, everything, and the, and the fact that like she clearly, clearly, clearly like in those. In the fact that every animal on that stage, like when I went on an actual safari and saw actual animals, I thought of the Lion King so much because it is amazing when you are looking at the actual animals in Africa, how um, much those puppets all capture the, the way that each of those animals move, you know, the way that hyenas walk with their kind of like heads low and the way that giraffes walk and the way that zebras look on the plane like like there is the storytelling is everywhere on that stage it is in every single costume it is in every single piece it is in every element all of those disparate like puppetry styles that she pulled from like it all is telling a single story so I think that's part of the answer earlier that I should have said is like you know the story is not only in the text of this show it is very much in every all of these other places and i think that's also part of why i kind of like felt like i didn't quite need as much dance because it was like okay great that wasn't as like
0: Mm -hmm. nailing
1: storytelling in the way that the other ones were but um yeah so so that you just have all of these different things um that are just amazing telling this, this, this podcast is just going to be us talking about how beautiful the design is, but it really is. And you see Africa and you see Disney, you see the movie and you see her aesthetic, like in equal parts, it doesn't feel like, like it all feels balanced. It's, it's um, amazing.
0: So, uh, let's then get to the perhaps hairier conversation, which is why hasn't Disney been able to do this again? Really? Why is this? I I'm, I don't necessarily agree with what I'm about to say but I think there are many people who would say that that Disney has not done this again it, it has not achieved it has not achieved success um that even is close to the Lion King I I don't necessarily agree with that assertion but I do think it is Disney's track record on Broadway is is quite checkered um and and they've stumbled into I think a fair amount of their success on Broadway. And I, I say that with huge, huge admiration for like, and again, not to sound like I'm a Disney shill, but like the amount of young people who are going to the theater for the first time to see the lion King. And this is their entryway into theater. I mean, come on, like not to take anything away from Annie, not to take anything away from any of the other shows, but like to witness this kind of art and say like, Oh, this is possible in the theater. Like, Oh my God. Like, you know the the work that it is doing is like incredible and yet we also have some of the like you know i think we can say monumental flops that have been other disney uh productions and even the ones that aren't flops necessarily like i don't know that we could say are nearly as art nearly as artistically successful or financially successful as this so Do you have a, Anika, and this is, again, it's very all speculation, but, like, do you have a sense as to why that is or thoughts on that? Or, like, what? how do you, why do you think Disney hasn't been able to quite do it again?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've I've thought about this a lot. I mean, I think part of it is just that, like, this show is lightning in a bottle. Like, there are not a lot of artists like Julie Taymor in in the world. And the fact that, like, it was kind of a, like, they... the show was allowed to have the space to find itself in the way that it did, I think was partially because they didn't have a reputation to uphold. They'd only done Beauty and the Beast, which was very kind of like straightforward. Um, So I think part of it is just lightning in a bottle. Like this is a very high degree of difficulty to take something that is as iconic as this movie and then to throw as much artistry that is new at it and to have it work like this. And so I think some of the, you know, they have tried that again with things like, you know, I mean, The Little Mermaid comes to mind where it's like, that was another like artist who is known for like very specific things. And it, it was like, it just didn't work. I mean, like there was, it, it it was like negative creative. I mean, I I don't want to throw that show under the bus, but it was like, I I remember sitting. I'll
0: throw that show. I love The Little Mermaid, but I will throw the show under the bus
1: yeah i mean i remember seeing like i have a whole thing about how the show curtain is indicative of the experience you're about to have um and i remember thinking okay it's a little mermaid it's got the show curtain's going to be like a gossamer kind of like sea thing like under the water and then i got there and it was literally black velvet with like little cutouts of like shrimp and and thing like it was little they were all the same size and behind it was like pink and i was like we are in deep trouble here um So, you know, like, they've tried to kind of do replicate the, like, artist's vision doing the show. It has not worked out in many cases. Like, I think Tarzan was actually the one that kind of probably came closest to having the same kind of, like, mind-blowing beauty of... Certainly uh, tried. They certainly tried. King. They certainly yeah, and, tried. They, and they and they really succeeded in in like the first twenty minutes of Tarzan were gorgeous, I and mean, when the gorillas came out. But the problem with Tarzan is it's a kind of a boring story ultimately. Like, so once you've seen the bag of tricks in the first twenty minutes, you you don't you just get a lot of gorillas coming out of the walls and a kind of boring story with a not great score. You know, like the the material and the art, and sometimes it's hard to imagine what the what the artistry would look like to match the material. Like Aladdin is a bit more comedic. It's a bit more goofy. It's real people. Like you have a little bit less of the like complete flexibility that you have with something like Lion King. I mean, the one that I actually feel like is definitely in my mind, the most successful. And it, I am sad that it is now closed. And I am sad that it, by all accounts, it's not going to come to Broadway because it's actually not Broadway. The, uh, Disney theatricals is um, Finding Nemo, man. They did a great job at translating that with to puppets for the the theme parks, and it was only like I think sixty minutes. They did a really smart cut. Great songs by Bobby Lopez and Kristen Anderson. I believe this is all on YouTube. It I don't is. even think you yeah, need to is. look for a slime tutorial because um, it was and, a theme park.
0: It was a theme park show. It was at Epcot, so and, yeah, it was a theme yeah. park show.
1: And that's the only one that I'm like, oh, this is exactly like. And again, it, it but maybe maybe that's a lesson too. It's like you know, Aladdin is people, <laughs> Frozen well, is mean,
0: people. And and even in the case of Tarzan, you're talking about mixing worlds, right? There's uh, like two worlds. Yeah. You've got the gorillas and you've worlds. got humans. And that's, right. that is a tall, it's a taller order than, yeah. than just all animals. It's the cats thing, right? I think we talked about it's this the It's the cats thing. Like when you, when that is there, if there, if a human entered the world of cats, it would, it would cause issues, right? And, yeah. And like, And not just because it just throws the visual off and like, and I don't know that that, I think it's a little bit of quick and easy answer to a much more complicated problem to say that it's like, Oh, just because there aren't humans. Like, I think it's a little more than that, but it is an interesting parallel.
1: Yeah. It's honestly not something I've thought about before that that is, that is a big problem. Um, and when you have a world that's only animals, you do have a lot more flexibility to kind of play around with it.
0: Well, and I like, and for instance, like I think Newsies is quite successful. I know you have feelings on Newsies because you grew up with Newsies. I did not grow up with Newsies, so uh, we don't have to get into. We'll do Newsies another time, gang. Don't you worry. I'm. We will get. I'm sure we'll get to Newsies at some point. But like, I think it's pretty artistically successful in that like it's coherent. It's got some great new songs. It builds well um and there are you know lots of things about it that that succeed great dancing whatever but they also never intended it for broadway that was not the intention it was developed for licensing it was not like that was never it was not a part of the equation really until f- way way later in in the process i i think hunchback is successful in some ways if you have witnessed the hunchback of Notre tom it is successful in in some ways um I have notes on it and I've done it, um, but I, uh, you know, there are some things that are successful, some things that are not. Um, and, <clears throat> and then you've got like Mary Poppins, which I have also done. It is, I think as many, uh, listeners to the program know, is my, one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, and it succeeds in some ways and, and doesn't in others. Now you also, that's a much more complicated. You've got Cameron McIntosh and P.L. Travert. There's a lot to contend with there, but it, it, is interesting to me that i would say in some ways as a as just raw material you're just looking at things on a page the most successful disney adaptation is beauty and the beast which is the most literal you are mixing worlds but in terms of like what is on the page i think it is the most the most successful in effectively like adapting telling expanding but not bloating whatever with the story of beating the beast lion king i don't think on the pages but you've got the artistry and the visual as we're saying and like there is that and then you've just you know it's it is interesting that with that that is and i mean we haven't even gotten into Fro- we haven't talked about frozen which to me frozen, you know sorry for my dissertation on this but like frozen and the little mermaid as movies are just as natural as musicals as like Beauty and the Beast is, I think. Like, you you look at it, it's structured and, like, it, well, it's, it follows the structure of a Broadway show. Like, it, there are things about yeah. it, but, like, it, it it seems to be a natural fit. And and people love it. Frozen is a phenomenon. I mean, like, it's yeah, a phenomenon to the point that they made a sequel and put it in theaters. Lion King, they made direct-to-video sequels. But you know if they thought they could make money on that, they'd put it in theater. Like, there are, like... And yet, like Frozen, like it's a phenomenon. And yet, that show was I tough. Talk about you're in town too much exposition, but
1: I know. And also, like what killed me about Frozen was that I was like, okay, you know, they're they're in a sort of Norwegian town it's fine that this is kind of like, looks fine. It looked fine to me. It didn't look super exciting, but I was like, okay, well, we got the big song. We're going to get to the ice castle. She's going to make that ice castle and you are going to unleash the beast. Like by all account, like that should be the moment where you are seeing stunning theatrical, like feats in front of you to, to make her like wave her arms around and sing that killer number and have it and it was, like, projections on the front and, like, big plastic hunks of stuff coming out of the floor. And then, like, this weird crystal curtain that comes down and looks... I mean, I, I remember just sitting there and deflating and thinking, like, this is it? This This looks like it's already the version that's on the cruise ship. Well, like, and
0: yeah, and it's it's peculiar. I saw it and Harry Potter in the same week. And they both, at the time, it was, like, quite well publicized. They both cost, like... $60 million. I mean, they both were just astronomically expensive shows. And I went to Harry Potter and I was like, this is theatrically stunning. And there's yeah. a lot of like low tech magic. There's a lot of things that are happening with Harry Potter that I would say are very much like the Lion King and in wonderful artistry and use of theatrical devices and, and different, very simple small things that actually make a huge impact and frozen I was like, Oh, really? This costs the same amount of- really like, and we didn't get that. So I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, and I know this is a very like not necessarily about Lion King thing, but I, I do think it, it is important to talk about and discuss and like, how, you know, how, how do you get there? Or is it just that it's lightning in a bottle and great here it is. And that's the magic of theater and the game of musicals and who knows? Yeah.
1: No, I think it's, I think it's a tough thing to achieve, but It just feels like the balance has not been right in terms of like getting the artists who have the vision for it and getting the script that can sustain it and get you know like maybe trust hasn't been in the right i don't know i don't know what it is but like i hope they can do it again
0: but listen i've said it once and say again all i want to do is work for the mouse in many ways um but like yeah i want yeah. them to, i want them to succeed i am not an anti i am not an anti-disney person by any no. imagination um you know what
1: honestly like try just try again with little room <laughs> like mean, well that's
0: what i mean it's like i'm just like listen like you had the wonderful howard ashman brilliant howard ashman and you like a like there's so much about it like in that initial movie and text that is like oh yeah just like that's what you expand this is what you talk about the boo boo doo doo like you got to figure out the end the end is the the like conch shell or whatever it is they did for the original oh, staging it was tough tough um but yeah like that that cannot there are many things that are made to work theatrically that are not like yeah i don't know i have lots of feelings about all of it this yeah this is what i spend a lot of my time thinking about if we're being perfectly honest. So Fair. Like I just yeah, so i it's just it is it is fascinating that I it is it shouldn't work in so many ways. Everybody said it was a bad idea, you know, and yeah, like, and 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 there you can absolutely see a world where they put everyone in like cowardly lion outfits and they talk about thatness, yeah. right? Like you can absolutely see a mascot version of this that Being is horrifying, like, <laughs> horrifying, horrifying, and like and you know yeah and
1: yet, I mean, it's another one. It's funny because in some ways it's like now it seems like the obvious slam dunk about like, I'll take a huge famous iconic movie and make it a Broadway show. But like, in some ways, it's another one like Hamilton, where it's like, that sounds like the worst idea ever. Like, you're going to take a weird downtown puppet artist. Right. And and this show that's set in Africa and it's all animals and it's going to be a hit Broadway show. I mean, you just kind of be like, What? Like that doesn't make, that doesn't, it doesn't compute, which is well, just to say the biggest hits never are A plus B equals C.
0: And, and the, you know, it's, and that, and that it's also not like, oh, it's a, you know, it pulls in its 1.4 weekly and it makes its not, yeah. therefore it's like, no, it is like one of these top tickets. Like we, so just even we, we, when we decided we were going to do the Lion King, I went you know information for the listener so when I went to the Broadway website I was like oh maybe Annika and I can like have a date a fun friend date night and we'll go see it and like we'll get tickets and it'll be fun for social media and like okay a fun little thing and I like went tickets for like the back of the I've never been to the Minskoff never you know I've seen like tour. I the tickets for the back of the house were like 170 like it was It was not insignificant in terms of the pricing I was looking at, and I was like, "Holy mother, are you what?" I I was like, "We "We can't do that. I cannot spend that kind of money for also not a seat that is like an amazing like." No, I can't just do that as a fun. And yet they sell those tickets, they get those butts in seats, they're doing it, and like, and and people are having wonderful times. I don't like hear people going like, "Oh, that shows." Like everyone's like, "Oh, wow, amazing!" Like it is incredible that and for 25 years and in as you said like every continent like every everywhere it's it is and it is there's wild. no sign of it slowing down no no none none no
1: nope. like and also like i mean it might be the first show i bring my son to right like, you know like it, it, there is something so fundamentally amazing about the theatrical experience of it that i'm like you know, even though it is not a show that I consider one of my, like, most favorite shows, but, like, there is something that, like, you, it is such a good gateway, as you said. Yes, yes. You know, I feel great about that being a f- one of the first shows that my son sees because I know it will show him a lot about what this art form that I love can can be and can do, Um, you know. And also, I think Sweeney Todd is probably a little advanced for him at Fifteen months, but didn't you know, stop,
0: uh, didn't stop me from buying him a romper that was uh, from this <laughs> love's <large> Pie Shop.
1: <laughs> oh, let's be clear, he is he is going to be immersed in sundime from a very early age. So, you know, oh, needs a little tiny barber's chair. Listen, his second birthday,
0: just a little tiny, like a baby, a baby-sized razor. Yeah, he can like lift up,
1: just a little one, a little just baby pick, pic. baby pick
0: and that brings us to our favorite things.
1: These are a few of my favorite things.
0: Where we talk about some of our favorite things from The Lion King. So, Annika, who is your favorite character in The Lion King?
1: I mean, how could you not? Well, okay. This actually might be a little bit of a I was gonna different say, This answer. was
0: this was this was actually much harder for me than I anticipated it being.
1: Yeah. Um if we were talking about the film, I would probably say Timon because I do love the character Timon. But I actually don't find the puppet of Timon to be one of my favorite puppets in the show. I agree. So, with that. so I'm actually going to say for the show, I'm going to go with Rafiki.
0: Great! I totally. I think that's great. I love that because yes, agreed. the ch- The change of making her a female shaman baboon, I think, is absolutely brilliant and wonderful. And yes. Also,
1: can I say I love the way you say baboon? Baboon. It's, a, it's like a very like distinguished, elegant say a
0: word. Baboon. A baboon. The my Oklahoma upbringing. Um, it's more fun. I think it's more fun to say baboon. baboon. I
1: think, and I, I think it's definitely
0: more fun. More fun. Um, call me pretentious, call me whatever. I think it's fun. Not you. I'm not accusing you of calling me pretentious. Um, so I struggle with this because I was like, yeah, I, I'm with you. I like they're great. I almost wanted to put Mufasa because like. Mm -hmm. there's so much like i was like that is so much to like there and then a part of me wanted to say scar because i think scar is a great villain i i I think actually my answer is scar i think he's a wonderful yeah um a wonderful wonderful villain but also i i just want to say for the record because this is very rare for me i also like the first answer i wrote down and i put slash scar um with simba i think Mm -hmm. simba is a i really love simba as a protagonist and both in the like movie and stage like i i find him a very appealing character um so i I, yeah which is just a rare answer for me it's always the ingenue and like i i'm talking about the male ingenue but i was just like hey it's weird that i'm like i actually kind of want to answer simba
1: yeah i think that's a great answer
0: yeah so what about what's your favorite song in the score of the lion king
1: i mean i feel like there's only really one answer maybe two answers oh i don't think so you don't think so i okay i
0: I, yeah but you go i mean i think i know what you're gonna say but
1: yeah i mean you're right okay maybe there isn't one answer like like just if we're talking about like i don't know i guess in terms of like like when i think of song and show like circle Uh life
0: Yeah, sure. Yes, no question.
1: Also, it's a good song. It's a great song. Yeah. Um, when I think of like song I want to listen to, I probably it's more Matata maybe, but um, Circle of Life. I'm still gonna say.
0: Yeah, I know. So I didn't actually answer Circle of Life because I uh, my answer, and this is it's hard because I'm not even thinking necessarily about the stage show.
1: It's the morning Uh, report. No, no,
0: (laughs) not for me. I love a comic number, but not that one. Um, I, I can't. I love. I just can't wait to be king
1: oh uh i do
0: love that i do love the song i also really love be prepared so it's a little (laughs) bit this it's the same split that i did before but like and neither really applies to the show like i really like he lives in you and in terms of like addition to the the, yeah the show i love that and i love the music of the lioness like dance hunt that like i love that i think it's so so good so that's like five answers that with lots of caveats but I'm not answering your right. life because I, because as a song, yes, as a staging event, obviously, it's like I just, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's probably the finest thing that's ever been on stage, but I don't know that it's, yeah.
1: No, you're right about being be prepared is also really an excellent one. Um, I've kind of forgot about that one and I shouldn't have because it's so good. It's really good. The one thing that I will say about you just can't wait, I just can't wait to be king is that like it, that, that intro sounds so much like under the sea to me. Because oh. it, it goes that's under the sea, and uh-huh. then it's like so. I'm always a little bit like, you
0: know, it's so funny. I've never actually, yeah, makes sense completely. It's this, yeah, mm-hmm. I <clears> always wonder if element. will it's like, hmm. so what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about the Lion King?
1: Well, um. I have, I have like 1.5, which is what when you were talking about the sort of like Julie Taymor being backstage, one of my favorite like New York moments was when it was still at the new Amsterdam. I was walking on 41st street, which is of course the back, like the stage door. And it was like in the middle of the day on um, probably a Wednesday or a weekend. And I remember looking up and there was a guy um, leaning out the window, chatting with someone who was on the street and he was, clearly in the middle of a show or between shows because he had the full makeup on. And then on his head was this like a metal thing. Like he had what was clearly like a framework for a mask that was going to go on top of that. And he was just chatting with someone on the street because it was like in the middle of the show. And I was like, I love this insane industry. Like it was such a perfect encapsulation of like just a dude chatting with another dude, doing their jobs. Like, but this guy's about to go on stage with a crazy mask on top of his head because he's playing like Mufasa. Amazing. Um, but um, the real moment I will say is that I love, there are a few things I love more than the sort of like industry uh, nicknames for things um, that are often sort of like silly and and, and fun and, and a little bit kind of catty sometimes. But I remember when Lion King was first running, like, It was so it was so tough on the ensemble to be like, I think the stage is raked, too, which is always really tough for people. But like um, they, you know, and they have all these different puppets and they're like hunched over into this and that. So I remember hearing that they called the opening number the semicircle of life because so many people were out every night. (laughs) 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 And that just has always made me laugh. So that is that is one of my favorite things uh, about the show.
0: So I, mine, I was going to say just circle of life generally in the staging of that's where this is, that's where I was going to put this, but the other miscellaneous thing that I really love is, well, and I guess one, a the circle of life. I do love that Tony performance from 1988 when like, all of Radio City just like immediately stands after witnessing and like it cuts to Julie Tamor and she like puts her wrap around her and applauds and she's like yeah it was a whole lot of work thank you <laughs> I just kind of love I'm like the internal story that has to be happening inside of her as that happens like is is great to me. Um I also in that performance, I think one of the, I always think that one of the lionesses actually like messes up the choreography and like gets off because I know that's so hard to like hear on the stage at the Tony's. And I think she gets off and you can kind of see it, but, or it's just a part of the choreography and that's what it is. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. The real miscellaneous, and this is incredibly stupid, but I wanna shout out the fact that as a child growing up, listening to i just can't wait to be hanging and i already like obviously said that it was the theme of my third third i think three-year-old birthday party um thanks mom listener of the program uh linda shout out to you for that one um i always love the fact that my last name was a lyric and it's gonna be king simba's finest fling i always loved that um Yay! so i'm just like it's like mm-hmm, it's my last name And that's like so childish and dumb. But I'm every
1: time I hear it, I'm like,
0: "Mm, "Hey,
1: hey, my (laughs) God!" Wouldn't it be amazing, (laughs) man? If you ever meet someone named Simba, you need to date slash marry that person because then your like wedding hashtag is taken care of.
0: Uh, Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Finest King Simba's finest fling. I guess. Well, yeah. Hmm. There it is. (laughs) Done. Artist. Also, oh, here's a miscellaneous thing I stumbled upon in research that I also loved. So, uh, and actually, I realized as I'm looking at my notes, I put this here. So, the translation of the Zulu at the beginning of Circle of Life. Do you know what it actually translates to? Because there are uh, apparently a couple different versions of this, but it basically translates because everyone also like has their own version of what they think is actually being said there, and it is like you know from. The horrible horrible like i'm not gonna say racist but definitely like oh gibberish versions of whatever it is they're saying it translates in zulu to here comes the lion my people the father of our nation we hail this coming of the lion it's beautiful the other translation that i stumbled upon which again i'm not not sure which is correct and it may be a difference between like what's is in the stage musical versus what's in the movie versus what's in all the different versions of it. But the other translation, here comes a lion father. Oh yes. It's a lion. We're going to conquer a lion and a leopard come to this place, which I kind of also love. It's not as like powerful maybe, but I was like, Oh yeah, actually like, that's what like the congregating of all the animals. And like, that's what they're like singing about i just oh, I, cool it's amazing. very cool that's cool fun little tidbit
1: yeah i love that
0: and that will bring us to corner of the sky, Gotta find my corner of the sky. where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon so the, I, we've been dancing around this all episode, I think, but the things, you know, obviously it is a gateway musical. It is a huge, like, the amount of young people who this is their first experience in the theater. I think it's hard to ignore the importance of this and the excellence of this that they are witnessing, as Annika said, um, as well. And just, but, and also the Disney of it all, that, like, this is Disney on Broadway, and where would Broadway be without Disney as, without without disney on broadway i mean Times square Times square would be a very different place like who knows maybe you know we can't run the counterfactual right but like it is not insignificant that they found massive success on broadway and it has absolutely pushed um it has absolutely pushed broadway in a certain direction that is uh you know even more commercial than it has always been broadway has always been commercial right but Um, it certainly has ushered in a a new era of, of Broadway. And I I think that's, this is emblematic of that. Um, but Annika, for you, what what do you think is its corner of the sky?
1: I mean, yes, certainly the presence of Disney on Broadway, a a huge biggie one. Um, I, I would like to say that it also is a good indication that, um, Broadway should be embracing of incredible artists who don't necessarily come from the commercial world
0: i totally Um, agree with
1: that yeah uh i i cannot say when i look at like broadway before and after this moment that that is necessarily something that has held true and as we talked about like it has kind of not worked in some cases but i think that that is uh where really what what the what the lesson of this is for me that like there are sometimes these brilliant artists who like like the mix of the the downtown avant-garde you know mime artistic puppetry forms from every all these different asian countries like you know artist with a capital a and disney with a capital d can yield this like perfect blend. So I think that is, that is part of it for me too, that like, I don't think this would have been a success or nearly the success it was if they played it more safe. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, it it taught that lesson again, like hire the, hire the artist, hire the brilliant person, hire the talent, the talent, because, um, you know, they, it, it might just pay off beyond your wildest dreams.
0: I totally agree, and ultimately, everything is a gamble, right? So, yeah, take the interesting, take the interesting gamble because it doesn't, especially if it, especially if it's as interesting as what Julie Tamoor presented and wanted to do.
1: Yeah, but also uh, don't let her do Simba in Vegas.
0: But also that, like, limitations also can be very good. F- limitations can be good.
1: Creative limitations, very freeing.
0: Well, that. Wraps it up for our deep dive into The Lion King. Um, but before we go, Anika has to give us a clue about what comes next. What comes next? So, Anika, what is our clue about the next show we'll be getting to know?
1: Well, this show, which I love very, very much, uh, was the beginning, was the reason that an iconic Broadway partnership began. This was a show that caused them to meet and work together in life and then uh, in on stage as well.
0: Which, you know, could be many things, um, but this is a particularly notable because uh, one of these people was a star and the other was not. And yet the power dynamic was very different when they first started. Maybe that's an additional kind of hints
1: yeah that's true um i will also say this is only this is a very specific me personal clue but i worked on a production of this that had one of my favorite gags of all time and it involved a violin a fake violin that was thrown off stage
0: and cue all listeners to know the show furiously googling, googling annika chapin looking for her resume <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. oh god yep. yeah i don't I, I i have to confess i don't know this show very well um but i'm excited i'm excited to dive in and get to know it because i i know certain aspects of it uh very well but not but not really i've never worked on it
1: it is a hoot and it completely falls apart at a certain point they like forgot to wrote a right a part of it it's very weird when you work on it
0: listen it's a good old chestnut and that's what we that's we love to dive into a chestnut here on the program we do we do we do indeed well we will see you next time for that dive bye everyone bye everyone